You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, welcome. We're going to be carrying on our week two in our uh, new class called How Christianity Saves Civilization and Can Do So Again. Now, if you missed it last week or if you forgot what we looked at last week, here's the big idea of the class. The big idea of the class is this. The extraordinary impact of Christianity is seen in the fact that you don't notice it. You may not realize it, but uh, you already hold particularly Christian-ish views. And the fact, even if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, many of the ideas that you hold to be true, many of the values that you value, are actually rooted in a Christian worldview. And the fact that you think these values are natural or obvious or universal just shows how profoundly this Christian revolution has affected you. It's the air that we breathe. Uh, the values that we hold dear are a product of a revolution that took place 2,000 years ago through a person and an event. The person is Jesus Christ, and the event is his life, death, and resurrection. Now, tonight, um, as a backdrop to what we're looking at in this class tonight, I want to dive in again and look at the Greco-Roman world. But before we do that, I want to make two quick comments. One, and some of you younger people know this, I, I did not know this, but I didn't realize that this whole idea of thinking about the Roman Empire is kind of like a meme or a trend on social media. Hannah pointed it out to me. He's like, apparently it's a thing. If you look it up, guys think about the Roman Empire quite a bit, apparently. So there we go. Um, the second thing is this. Um, so I, I received a you know a couple uh, questions throughout the week, and this is great. Keep keep them coming. But one of the questions that came out was this: Is um, David, are, are aren't you being a, a little bit harsh on the Greco-Romans? Um, I mean, was were every one of them bad, and you know, were every one of them immoral? Um, well, that's a good question. And I think the question um, leads us to ask another question, is what do we mean by moral? I think there are uh, overlaps between Christianity and some of the ideas in the Greco-Roman world. There are overlaps. In fact, if you look at the what became known as the four cardinal virtues, um, those come right out of uh, uh, the Greco-Roman world. So there are overlaps, but there's serious differences. And there's serious differences in terms of how people saw the world. And this is what we're going to be looking at. So tonight, in order to set up our conversation tonight, I'd like to look at two passages. Two passages that are probably quite well known uh, to some of you, uh, maybe new to some others. The first one is, is found in Genesis, right at the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, we read in verse 26, Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them and he blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The second passage is found in Galatians chapter 3, where Paul, the apostle, writes these words. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. Jesus, you are so welcome here. You have transformed history. Our lives will never be the same again because of you. Our world will never be the same again because of you. And so we pray, Jesus, that you would speak into our hearts tonight, 
that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that would receive from you. And then you would grant us courage to respond to whatever you say to us tonight. That's our desire. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So tonight we're going to be looking at the revolution of the person that Christianity initiated. And uh, we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at uh, the idea of uh, the value of a human being. And secondly, the equality between human beings. And so I want to begin with two quotes. Two quotes from different time periods. Now, my friends, on uh, my cyber friends, make sure you are muted because we'll hear their whole story and it'll be on Spotify and you don't want that. Um, so make sure you're muted. Okay, I'm going to give you two uh, two quotations. One's an ancient quotation and one is the less, less so ancient and not, not as ancient. The first one is this. This is a fellow named Tertullian who lived in the second century, quite a well-known church um, leader. And he said these words. He says, quote, we are equally forbidden to wish ill, to do ill, to speak ill, to think ill of everyone. The thing we must not do to an emperor, we must not do to anyone else. So whatever we're not going to say to an emperor, we shouldn't say to other people as well. Now, I say that to you. I give you that quotation. I think if I spoke to most people in, in our world, or especially here in the West, um, a lot of people would hear that quote and go, yeah, I agree with Tertullian. Uh, of course, of course, citizens and rulers are created equal. And of course, we shouldn't show favoritism, but recognize that there's nothing special about an emperor um, that would separate him from anyone else. Everyone ought to share the same rights because they're equal. They're the same. All people are equal. Right? But again, to keep coming back to this point, is, 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 are these assumptions of equality that evident? Are they, would this be the gut reaction right through history? I don't, I don't think so. Wait, let me give you the second quotation. And it's a more modern one. And this is uh, by a guy named Lord Sumption in January of 2021 during the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, he says these words, Lord Sumption. He said, I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. Now, Lord Sumption was a former UK Supreme Court justice and when he said these words, let me repeat them. I don't accept that all lives are of equal value. Um, he, he, it caused a huge uproar. And it, yeah, I mean, I can hear you saying, yes, of course it should. Uh, he said this during the pandemic. And he was on TV and he was debating whether or not the government lockdowns during the pandemic were helping or hurting the population. And um, Lord Sumption, he was critical of the government lockdowns. And so what he said, he said, yes, seniors are more likely to be affected by COVID, but young people are to be more affected by the lockdowns. And therefore, he reasoned um, that the lockdown was doing more harm than good. It was punishing too many people in the name of the greater good. Now, of course, everybody, when they heard him say this, they, they jumped on him and they said, oh, you know, how can you say this? And so they argued that, well, if you don't lock down, if you don't do a lockdown, are we essentially sacrificing the senior citizens for the sake of the young? And Lord Sumption, who was a retired man himself, he suggested that the elderly in England, were willing to make that sacrifice. He said this, <laughs> he said, my children's and my grandchildren's lives are worth much more than mine because they have got a lot more time ahead of them. <laughs> okay. Well, things blew up. You know, things really blew up. And people were outraged that this man you know, I had a, a, a leader in society would suggest that all lives are not of equal value. 
One woman who was suffering from cancer heard what Lord Sumption said, and she was so mad. And she said to him, she said, with all due respect, I am the person who you say their life is not valuable. In response, Lord Sumption said, I didn't say your life was not valuable. I said it was less valuable. Well, let's just say that didn't help the situation. <laughs> Let me ask you an obvious and yet not so obvious question. Why, did, why were people so upset? Why did people get so upset at Lord Sumption? <laughs> There's some truth in it? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Well, partly I think it's because Lord Sumption was suggesting the unthinkable. He was suggesting that young people are more valuable than the elderly because they are healthy and therefore more valuable than the elderly and the sickly. And so the same cancer patient said in response to Lord Sumption's clarification, this is what she said. It's interesting what she said. She says, who are you? To put a value on life. In my view, and I think in many others, life is sacred. And I don't think we should be making those judgment calls. All life is worth saving regardless of what life it is people are living. Okay, now this is interesting. This is going to drill down here a little bit. You know, notice a few things. First, notice the octane in her response. She was arguing for something that in her thinking was as natural as the air we breathe. All life is sacred. Young and old, sick and the healthy. But notice how natural and yet somewhat strange her response was. I mean, this is in a very secular age. The person who is responding, from my understanding, had a very secular background. Um, we live in a world where, you know, the idea of God, even the talk about God is all but eclipsed where religion has been privatized or relativized. But in reaction to any claim of natural inequality or proposed inequality, what's the immediate reaction? No, how dare you suggest this? Don't you realize that all life is, let's listen to the language, sacred. And it's actually quite remarkable how these ideas and this language, the sacredness of our life, comes to the surface in a society that no longer believes in the sacred. And that's self-consciously secular. I know in Canada, because I, as many of you, you are probably immersed in many of the debates during COVID, this idea of the, 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 the sacredness of all human life, whether they're old or young, came up again and again and again in public debate. Even today, and we need to get this, to deny the inherent equality of persons, to deny this is, 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 is sometimes the language that's used is, it's sacrilegious. But then the question becomes, and this is a question I want you to think about, is why? Why is the equality of human beings ass assumed as natural? And therefore, the inequality of worth between human beings seen as being wrong why is treating the elderly and the sick as less than valuable why is that so wrong like even the aclu the american civil liberties union um, though overtly non-religious its mandate is to support laws that protect the weak and the vulnerable but why should laws protect the weak and the vulnerable why do the weak and the vulnerable even matter. Okay. To set things up a little bit. Um, let's go back to the Roman Empire, to the Greco-Roman world. Because we talked about this briefly last week, but these ideas of human equality would have um, struck thinking pagans as just strange. Uh, if you read the writings of guys like Aristotle or Cicero, in, in, in pagan culture, you never see an appeal to brotherhood or sisterhood. Uh, there's no concern. You'd be hard-pressed to find a writer, a philosopher, 
showing deep concern for those on the margins of society, the weak and the vulnerable. The, the weak and the vulnerable, they were just unfortunate. They were losers. And, and the idea of equality between people was, was, was ludicrous. It was absurd. Um, the Greek um, historian Thucydides said these words. He says, the strong do as they wish, and the weak suffer what they must. This is simply the way things are. And if I had a special guest speaker tonight, and I said, ladies and gentlemen, all the way from Greece, I brought in our friend Plato. Give it up to Plato. And Plato comes in and says, hello, hello, hello. Or, um, you know, what, 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 what would that be like? If we interviewed him and, and we brought up the question of equality between people, what would he say? If we told Plato that Lord Sumption, this guy Lord Sumption said, some lives are worth more than others, what would Plato say? Well, in Greek, he would say, well, duh. Of course they're unequal. And he would go on. He would say, well, think about it. In society, you have all sorts of different groups of people. You have men and women. <laughs> of course they're unequal. Women, as we established last week, are simply undeveloped men. They are soft. They are like fruit that hasn't ripened yet. He said, get mad at Plato. Um, and and, and the, he would say, you know, there's, there's the Greeks. And the Greeks are, uh, the Greek men, of course, are, are, are special. And then there's everyone else. There are slaves. There are free men. And, I mean, slaves aren't even human. And you're, you're going to suggest that, that a tool is somehow equal to a Greek man? It, like, since when is a hammer of equal value to the carpenter wielding the hammer? It makes no sense. And so Plato, because he's pretty smart, he might, he might turn the question on you, because that, that's what's, what these guys do. And he might look at you, and he might address you tonight and say, say these words. Well, tell me, barbarian Canadians, how do you arrive at this preposterous idea that people are equal? What, what magical realm are you drawing from where people are seen as equally valuable? Where do you get this idea? By observation? I don't think so. It's not a lot of evidence for this. Then where? Where do you get this idea that human beings are equal? Now, I can see from the anger in your eyes that you believe, you honestly believe this equality thing to be true. But honestly, I'm puzzled. Why do you believe this? Where does this come from? There's no evidence in history of this. Observe humanity, Plato would challenge us. It's so clear. Some people are more obviously more capable than others. So, of course, people are worth more than others. On what basis aren't they? Now, our, our man, Lord Sumption, <laughs> was trying to clarify his thoughts. So we read that later that week, he's on TV again. And he's trying to make his point clear. And this is what he says. <laughs> I was making a perfectly simple point. <laughs> he says, every policymaker has to make difficult choices. Sometimes that involves putting a value on human life. It's a standard concept in health, economics, quality adjusted life years. That's what I'm talking about. Policymakers have to do that. Otherwise, they cannot weigh up the consequences of different policy choices. And so his point is this. And, and if you work in a hospital, you know this. If you have a 99-year-old and a 9-year-old and you only have one life-saving treatment, who's going to get it? The 9-year-old. But then Lord Sumption added a dimension to his argument that had been lacking. He says, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that people are morally worth less. 
It doesn't mean that they're worth less in the eyes of God, in the eyes of their fellow citizens. Now, notice what he did there. He added a new dimension, didn't he? A vertical dimension. He emphasized the equality of worth between human beings before God. And then he went on to argue right after this that when it comes to policymaking, all I was saying is that some lives are worth more than others. And, and he gets into all sorts of trouble again. Everybody got mad at him again. But the question I want to, you to, to, to feel or to think about and, and what I want to linger on is this. Where does this deep sense of ugh, revulsion come from when somebody says one group of people is more valuable than another? You know, people who argue for racial superiority. You hear that in the Ku Klux Klan. It's like, oh, you guys are crazy. Or, or um, you know, people that make the argument that the elites of this world, you know, the, the, the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk, because they're so smart and they got a lot of money, we should let them kind of call the shots. I'm like, Oof. Or when somebody says this culture is better than another culture. Why do we feel this revulsion? Well, I would argue that one of the reasons we feel this, ah, this isn't right is because of an assumption we make about what constitutes a human being. Now, what is a human being? Now, that's a big question. Um, there's a fellow, and, and actually how you answer this question, what is a human being, really says a lot. Because remember what we said last week? Um, theology affects anthropology. How you see the transcendent affects how you think of human beings. So there's a fellow name, and maybe you've heard of him. His name is Yuval Noah Harari. I know, Lori, you and I were talking about him uh, last week. Has anybody ever heard of him? Yeah, I see a couple hands, yeah. Yeah, best-selling writer. Um, he's all over the internet. Um, he's written two best-selling books. One book is called uh, Homo Deus, uh, the the uh, the man god, and the other book is called Sapiens. And his thesis is pretty clear. He says, unless we understand human origins, we cannot face the future wisely. So far, so good. So, for this fellow Harari, what are the origins of human beings? He says, well, our origins aren't pretty. They're characterized by the shedding of blood, violence, and struggle. Homo sapiens have dominated this planet by force, through violence, through pride, through aggression. Um, human beings, among all animals, among all mammals, human beings are not the strongest, fastest, or toughest, but we have dominated this planet. How? How come human beings have dominated this planet when, you know, grizzly bears are certainly stronger? What has made human beings so successful? Well, according to Harari, it's because as human beings, we have learned to cooperate with one another. If we're all alone, if you're all alone beyond Bunsen Lake, and you're trying to make a go of it on your own with no blankets, no, you're gonna, it's, it's, it's not going to be easy. You, you most likely will die over time. But if you're in a family or in a community, the chances of survival increase. Because right? I know if I'm attacked by a bear, that JC, you'll 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 help me out, right? You'll stand in front of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so Harari says, you know, human beings have learned to cooperate. And and how do we learn to cooperate as human beings? How do we learn to cooperate with one another? And he says, well, you know what binds us together? What binds human together, uh, human beings together, is the idea of story. Isn't that interesting? Human beings are storytellers. And in our stories, we find meaning to life that help us survive. And then he says something interesting. He talks about the story of human rights. And listen to what he says. He says, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. But what are human rights? Human rights, like God and heaven, are just a story we've invented. They're not an objective reality. 
They're not a biological fact about homo sapiens. I mean, take a human being, cut him open, look inside. You'll find a heart, kidney, neurons, hormones, DNA. But you know what you won't find? You won't find human rights. The only place that you'll find rights is in the stories that we have invented and spread over the last few centuries. But they're just fictional stories that we've invented. Okay, now I want you to sit with that for a moment and around your tables or on the internet, I want you to ask yourself two questions. What does Harari get right and what does he get wrong? I think I have the quote on the legal system. So I have that in your notes. Yeah. So look at that quotation. What does Harari get right and what does he get wrong? Okay. So I'm going to just, we're just going to pause right now, Jonathan. We're going to pause. And uh, I'll bring you back. Okay, let's uh, let, let me hear from you. What does uh, what does Harari get right? <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Anything? Okay, the first sentence. Most legal systems in the world today are based on belief in human rights. Very good. Yeah, that's true. And nothing else. <laughs> Well, on, on, on paper, though, on most legal systems, how it's actually played out is, is, is often a different story. So what does, uh, what does he get right? Yeah, we, uh, most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. Anything else that he gets right? The story part, yeah. Yeah, so he, he, he does... Um, oh, I just realized... Mute it. Mute it. <laughs> So I'll say that again. <laughs> what does he get right? What does he get wrong? What he gets right is most legal systems in the world today are based on a belief in human rights. And secondly, he talks about the story. Now, he says that stories are invented. They're not true. But he does link our understanding of human rights to this idea of story. Right? There's, there, there's, there's something there. Um, that these stories have enabled humanity to survive, yeah. And, and, he, and that there is a connection. It's, it's intimated that there's a connection between like a, a transcendent story about God and human rights story. But the reality, he would say, well, this is, this is not an objective reality. And he's also correct in saying that rights are not obvious. You cut open a human being, you will not find a human right in there. Right? You'll find a heart, kidney, all sorts of other things, but not a human right. Now, where does he go wrong? Well, lots of areas. Um, that all stories are fictional inventions, right? All stories. Now, I'm just going to get geeky here for a second. More geeky. I'm sorry. Okay. Accelerated geeky. Um, if he says that all stories, all stories are inventions. Well, his story about how all stories are inventions is actually discredited, isn't it? Yeah, it's a story. He's telling a story, but he, he's just been tell, telling us that all stories are groundless. Um, anyhow, uh, why should we believe him on this? Okay, so I want to illustrate this. Now, again, I'm drawing from uh, a number of sources. Uh, I really like Glenn Scribner's book, The Air We Breathe, but there's a few other ones. But I came across um, this story in, in, in Glenn Scribner's uh, book, and I want to share with you. Um, it outlines the theme that we're hitting tonight, and uh, that there's a deep, intimate connection between theology and anthropology, our belief in God, and how we see each other as human beings between God's story and our story. So Scrivener, he describes uh, a famous debate that took place back in 2018. And the debate took place uh, between well-known atheist Sam Harris and Jordan Peterson. So many of you are familiar with Jordan Peterson, um, former U of T professor, um, back in, in 2018. And in the debate, Harris, Sam, Sam Harris, uh, offers a memorable analogy. What he does, he does this. He picks up a glass of water and he says this. He says, what if I told you that this wasn't just any glass, but this was a glass that was used by Elton John in his very last concert? 
Oh, yeah. How much would you pay me for it? Right? Selton John's last concert, right? How much would you pay me for this? Quite a bit. Or if you like Elton John. <laughs> so what's the point he's making? He's saying that he's talking about how we value things. Um, this glass of water <laughs> by itself is not worth a whole lot at all. But now, because it's connected to this cultural icon, Elton John, is perceived as being valuable. Because if you like Elton John, well, you'll value this glass, won't you? Right? Now, if you, if you like Elton John, you could substitute Roger Whitaker or whoever you want. No. Uh, <laughs> now, during this debate, Harris goes on to say, he says, you know, imagine this glass of water. This glass of water is like a, like a, like a strip of land. It's like a piece of land on the east part of the Mediterranean. And this, this strip of land has been fought over by Jews and by Arabs for a long, long time. One group calls this land Israel, and the other group calls it Palestine. And the conflict is motivated by stories surrounding this land. And according to Harris, this is really dangerous. Why? Because you're attaching value to something that actually is not that valuable. He says, quote, the reason why parties involved in the Arab-Israel conflict can't resolve their problems as though it were a real estate transaction is because they're making irrational and irreconcilable claims about the land. The stories that they're associating with the land are obviously not true and have resulted in so much unnecessary bloodshed in this land. And so what's Harris saying? He's making this point. He's, he's comparing the land and the story of God to the glass and Elton John. You, you're with me so far? Yeah, the, you know, the land is valuable because it's seen as being intimately connected to the story of God. And he, he bless you, and he compares that to the glass of water and Elton John. So the land is valuable because it's believed that it's the story of God being played out on this, this piece of real estate. But Harris says, you know, the actual land's not that nice. It's not worth very much. But because of the story that you've been told, it's seen as super valuable and people are losing their lives fighting over it. And then to conclude, Harris has this punchy statement. He says, and while we're arguing over the glass of water, the value of the glass, Elton John was never here. And everybody cheered. Oh, well done. <laughs> well, I, you know, because this point again, you know, God doesn't exist. Right? God doesn't exist. So the stories are bogus. Elton John has left the building. He never existed. He was never there. So why are we fighting over this piece of land? You see, you with me? And everybody thought, oh, this is brilliant. This is great stuff. And everybody cheered. Now, and it was, I have to say, it was it's a clever line. It was a very clever. But what about archaeology? Well, hang on, hang on. <laughs> I want to I want to unpack a little bit about the assumption that Harris is making. What are some of the assumptions that Harris, the atheist, is is making? First, he's saying that there's nothing special about the land because the stories associated with the land are not true. God does not exist. But there's another assumption. I don't know if you picked it up. The other assumption is that. Because this land is not worth anything, because the stories of God aren't true. Why do so many lives have to, you know, how many, so many people have to die for the sake of this land? How come so much blood is spilled on this land? And, and he's lamenting that. And his point is this, is that, you know, these human lives, they matter more than this strip of land. 
which obviously is not worth anything. But this begs a question. Now are you with me? You gotta stay with me here. And the question I want to ask Mr. Harris is this, Mr. Harris, why should we value people over land? Why are people more important than this strip of land? What makes people so valuable? So for fun, let's re return to the glass analogy. Instead of the glass of water representing land, let's say this glass of water represents human beings. Okay, think about a human being. How much is a human being worth? How valuable are human beings? Well, Mike and I were talking about this. <laughs> if you really literally boil down a human being, like you actually boil us down, um, in our physical makeup, apparently our body, our physical body is worth about $30. So there's a debate. It could be some of you, it could be a hundred, I'm not saying, but it's not, it's not a lot of money. That's how much our actual bodies are worth, like on the market. It's not worth a lot. Now, if you don't boil me down and say, David, I want you to go to work for me. Well, maybe I'm worth a little bit more, but where's my value found? Well, in, in, in how well I work, I guess. Uh, and how do I determine, are, are, JC, are you worth more than me or am I worth more than you? How, how, where does our value come from? And, and most people, even including atheists, would say, no, a human being's value goes beyond simply their physical chemical makeup or their usefulness. But then you have to ask the question, why? Where does our value come from? To put it differently, if there's no Elton John, if God does not exist, on what basis are we valuable? Is a, I hope you see this because you have to see there's an intimate connection between God's story and the human story. They're connected. Without a God story, and not just any God story, the God story, human beings have very little value. But think about it. What if God exists? What if his story is not a fiction? What if his story is true? Then what? Well, okay, there's ramifications to this. So what does the Bible say? What does the creation, the Bible's creation story say? What does theology say? Well, it, it, it begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And unlike the, the stories we looked at last week in Greek mythology, the biblical story is not about lots of gods raping and killing each other. It's not a picture of a divine dictator or an impersonal force. What is revealed is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God who is good, who is loving, and who has a unique purpose for creation. We read at the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning of Genesis, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, at this stage, if this was a Greek myth, there would be a big battle that would break out. Uh, but there is no big battle. We find the Spirit of God hovering over the chaos, and then God speaking his word and order coming out of chaos. Darkness flees, light shines in the darkness. And then we read in Genesis about the forming and filling of creation. There's a process. It's not complicated. There's a voice behind all things, and all things respond to the voice. God creates Creation brings life. There's artistry, poetry, beauty. And then at the very end, we read that creation is very good. And the pinnacle of creation is what? God creates humanity in his image. Man, female. Make sure you're, uh, you're, you're, <laughs> you're muted. <laughs> what a contrasting story. The biblical story, humanity, we're not created to be slaves, but we're actually created to reign and to rule and to be good stewards over God's good creation. As men and women, we are stamped with God's image and called to live as vice regent over God's good creation. Now, if you told your neighbor this story, now this is the biblical story, 
this is this is actually how God created all things. They might roll their eyes and be like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know about you Christians. Yes, God created blah, 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 blah. But you have to realize, if you're in the Greco-Roman world and you tell the same story, the Greeks would roll their eyes or whatever the equivalent would, of that would be in Greek culture. Because the idea for in Greek culture, in the Greco-Roman world, the idea of human beings having value was, was ludicrous, especially... Well, I mean, they could see maybe a king, a king having value. Okay. But two ordinary human beings being made in God's image, given commission to rule over all things. And do you know what's so strange? Is that one of those human beings is a woman. How in the world can she be a vice regent over creation? But the, Psalm 115, verse 16, the heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. So what are human beings? Well, we read in scripture that humanity is made of dust. And what that means is that there's a frailty to who we are. Our lives are but a shadow. But uh, we also read that God breathes life into us. And I love the way Scribner puts it. He says this, I love this quote. We are dirtbags kissed by heaven. Isn't that a great line? We are dirtbags kissed by heaven. Beloved dust. In ourselves, we are like that $1 water glass. But we are touched by the divine too. And in that connection with God, we are precious beyond all earthly valuation. You get that? I love C.S. Lewis and Prince Gaspian. He says, to one of the characters, he says, you come from the Lord Adam and Lady Eve, says Aslan, and that is both honor enough to erect the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the shoulders of the greatest emperor on earth. Genesis 3 tells us, of course, the story of how things go wrong. Um, contrary to Billy Joel, we actually did start the fire. Um, when we were put in charge, we made a royal mess of everything. But, but get, get this, you have to get this. In Genesis 3, Everything goes wrong because human beings, rather than trusting God, they thought they'd do it on their own, right? Right? But you have to get this. Just the role that human beings play, the significant role that God allows human beings to play, even in messing things up, elevates the role of human beings. He allows us to mess things up. If you read in the Greco-Roman world, in the Greco-Roman um, creation narratives, human beings have no role. We're just slaves to the gods. The stories about the gods, that's where all the action is happening. In, in the Bible, it's like no human beings are given tremendous roles, even the role and the dignity to mess things up. And see, the criticism that's being thrown against Christianity from ancient times to modern day is that, oh, Christianity is too human-centered. Human beings are too important. We live in a world today where, you know, you get a guy like, uh, what's his name, Peter Singer? Mike, that's the name, yeah. Who would say it's just, as, it's just as moral to, if you're driving a car and the car goes out of control, it's just as moral to run over a, a mother with her baby in a carriage than it would be to run over a duck with ducklings. It makes no difference. Human beings, animals, same. And screw tape letters, <laughs> screw tape the experienced demon says to warm with the inexperienced demon. God, or the, he's referring to God. He really loves the human vermin <laughs> and really desires their freedom and continued existence. And so the key point for tonight is this. Is that the inherent value of every human being, that every human being is understood as being made in the image of God. That's where our value is found. And it's the understanding of what is called the Imago Dei, the image of God. And you know what? It's the image of God, the Imago Dei, which is the foundation for human rights. Because without the Imago Dei, on what basis is a human being valuable? Okay. Let me ask you, talk around your table. Without the Imago Day, on what basis can you find value in human beings? 
Okay, so uh, yeah, it's funny. So my cyber friends, you guys are having such a lively conversation. A few of us in the front tables were like, whoa, this is really good. We're reading it. So we're reading your conversation. Good job. Um, okay, without the Imago Day, what do we got? On what basis do we have our, our any kind of value? Yeah. You know. It's oh, it's socially constructed. Yeah, so it's it's like let's agree that we have value. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, we will get to that at actually tonight. Yeah, good. Yeah, because it's 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 um, it totters. This this yeah, it's it's. What else? What else you got? I saw it online. Usefulness. That's right. Yeah, and 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 that really does um, become the main foundation for human value. But here's a, it's not just today. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, if your 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 value was based on um, your utility. And in many places in the world, um, that, that holds to be true. It is hard to make a case for human value without the stamp of God on us giving us value. Um, we tend to fall into utility. Back to Lord Sumption's comment about the relative value of a senior with a young person. And the ancient world, same thing. The pagan world was quite reasonable when it came to assessing human value. Um, look at how they viewed children. Um, in many ways, pagan philosophers endorsed what today we might call eugenics. They bred very carefully. The children born in a family were valued by their usefulness. I'm glad my mom didn't practice this, though I could vacuum and cut the grass well. So, um, But usefulness was a key factor in determining whether or not a baby should live or not. And so, as, as many of you know, abortion and infanticide were quite commonplace in the ancient world. And we're going to dive into that. Next week, we're going to look um, a little more closely at, at family and work. Um, but suffice to say, in the ancient world, um, there's only one people who did not practice abortion and infanticide, and they were the Jews. Every other nation or empire, the, um, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, the Greeks, the Romans, they regularly killed their young. And the ones who were killed were killed primarily because they were deemed to be useless. Now, don't take my word for it. Listen to one of their philosophers himself, a well-known philosopher named Seneca. He says, quote, we knock mad dogs on the head. We slaughter fierce and savage bulls. And we doom scabby sheep to the knife, lest that they should infect our flocks. We destroy monstrous births. And we also drown our children if they are born weakly or unnaturally formed. To separate what is useless from what is sound is an act, not of anger, but of reason. It makes sense. This wasn't debated in the ancient world. This was the air that people breathed. And in Plato's Republic, uh, he has his master, Socrates, lay out some guidelines for having children. And this is, this is Socrates, um, you know... Parenting uh, handbook. Uh, he, he says, uh, when the prime years are for men, he talks about the prime years uh, for men and for women. He argues that once women are past their childbearing years, so he says they're around 40 years old, both men and women can be as promiscuous as they like. They just need to know that if they happen, if a woman happens to conceive after she's 40, um, obviously this child will not be up to standard and will have to be aborted or thrown away. Aristotle is on the same page as Plato. He says, as to the exposure and rearing of children, as to the exposure, which is, you know, putting them outside to die, and the rearing of children, let there be a law that no deformed child shall live. But where there are too many, or in our state population has a limit, when couples have children in excess and the state of feeling is averse and to the exposure of offspring. So if you have too many children and it's not really cool to just throw them outside to die, 
Let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. What may or may not be lawfully done in these cases depends on the question of life and sensation. Now, I've quoted this before because I didn't bother this time, but I had that, there's a quite a well-known love letter between this woman and 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 her husband, who is a, who is a, a, you know kind of high up in society, and he, it's a quite a tender letter. And he just says, you know, I miss you. I'd like to be home, but I can't be home. And don't worry, I sent some money, so that that'll help you. And and uh, you you know, I miss you. Um, I know that you're about to have a baby. Just remember that um, um, if it's a if it's a girl, discard it. You know that I miss you. I'll be home soon. Yeah. Daughters. Yeah, go ahead. Question. Was it about survival? Was it the lack of resources? No, it wasn't. In fact, uh, we know that uh, under certain empire emperors, like under um, uh, Augustus, for example, uh, Rome went through one of its, its uh, most prosperous periods. And yet um, it was one of the lowest birth rate periods in, in Roman history. And so, I mean, it is kind of, there are some similarities that when, when, when societies prosper, um, they tend, well, especially in, in, in uh, more in a secular society, um, they tend not to have children. Um, there is a change. I mean, boy, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but there is a change that's happening in the world. I, you know, I saw this coming and I, you know, I was talking to different people and reading different things about over 10 years ago. But um, everybody talks about our population in this planet and the population, population control. Do you know our, our population in our planet is going to peak in, in the next few years and then it's going to plummet? China's population for the first time has dropped this year. And it's because people aren't having children. Now, it's not because there's not enough wealth or anything like that. It's just there's other priorities. Um, and I think there's a bit of a culture of death. And this culture of death, and in particular in the Rome, in the Greco-Roman world, and, and you see this in other places in the world today, and I'll talk about this. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, the one group of people that were always looked down on as being useless were women. And so there's a city, there's a city called... Um, Delphi in, in, in Greece. And of the 600, 600 families in this one particular area, only six families had more than one daughter. Only six. Um, if the child was, and the Romans call it, if the child was called, if the child was, quote, an odious daughter, if, if, if so, if any any baby that was born, what would happen is 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 that the pater familias, the head of the household, would come and look at the baby, and would determine whether or not the baby should live or die. And if you had any suspicion, you know, if it was a if it was a male and there's any deformity, get rid of it. If it was a girl and they already had a daughter, nine times out of ten, it'd be like get rid of it. And so you think about a society where women are scarce goods. That's a whole other topic. Whenever you have a society where there are more men, and in the Roman Empire, there are a lot more men than women, like huge difference. Whenever women are scarce goods, women are increasingly oppressed and seen as less than human. Wherever there are more women than men or the population is about the same, this is where you're going to find um, more emphasis on women's rights and women's freedom. That's been the case all throughout history. Seneca says, what is good must be set apart from what is good for nothing. So this one, uh, one book I was reading by uh, Mike Aquilini, he says, listen to this description. He says, the non-persons, which is basically, because it would be the paterfamilias, the head of the household, would actually have to make the call. This is a human being. This is a person. Or not. The non-persons who were left on the floor while their mothers watched from birthing chairs would be drowned immediately in a bucket of water or brought to the town dump to be exposed to wild dogs and vultures. If they survive for any considerable time there, they might be rescued by pimps and raised as child prostitutes. 
It was all legal and above board. It was the right thing to do, as any reasonable and well-adjusted pagan philosopher will tell you. Now, you've heard me talk about but there's huge archaeological finds in different cities in the Roman Empire that uh, where you see sewers that were clogged with the bones of baby baby girls. And so the issue is, where is the value of a human being found? Well, they were without great use in the Roman world. Now, the thing is, you see this in our culture today. Even like I, I think I've shared with you, but when, when I lived in China, in China, there's a strong emphasis on having a baby boy and a less emphasis on having a baby girl, especially when there's a one child policy, which lasted for a long time. Um, my my one of my closest friends, his wife had a baby, and I came to visit the hospital and looked at the baby and everything's great. And there was another family, a peasant family next to us, and they had a baby girl. And in the in the hospitals, there's no heating. So it's freezing cold. And the baby was lying there with no blanket, no nothing. And I said to my friend, what's going on? He said, well, they want her to die because it's a girl. And so we come back to our own current situation. When, when, we, um, when we remove the foundation of God's story for humanity, now don't get me wrong, I'm not saying the church is, has got it right when it comes to human beings throughout its, its history. I mean, the church has a lot of dark moments in its history, but that's because it wasn't living up to what Scripture taught us. That's what's, that's what's, what's wrong. When we remove the foundation of God's story for humanity, the dignity and the value he gives us by stamping us with the Imago Dei, when this is removed, what are we left with? We're left with utility. So let me ask you an awkward question. How useful are the weak, the vulnerable, and the elderly in Canada? What do we do when uh, you know a thirty-something-year-old who's suicidal goes to a local hospital in Vancouver and gets gets offered medical assistance and dying? Oh, I know it's, it's quite specific. I have many, many personal examples of people and family members where it's been offered, but I, I get it that that's the original intent. But it also, the original intent has has, has changed. Um, made deaths. Um, in Canada last year, we're over 10,000. And it was up 35% from, uh, from two years earlier. Now, part of this, I, I, and I, you know, I, I believe quite strongly in this, I, I think when you remove the Imago Dei, then you're left, and, and you live in a technological world where something new is valued and something old is not as valued, um, what do you do when people get old? Well, they're not as valuable as they used to be. They're not producing, they're not contributing to society. And so it's tempting to see them as less than valuable. Now, I'm not for a moment, like I know there's complexities. And I've, I've met with, with people and families where they're struggling with whether or not they should take medical assistance and dying. And, and you know, I, I'm not in people's shoes. I, I know, so I'm not. But I, I do know that our value, our value from a biblical perspective is, is rooted in the fact that we are created by God. That is where our value is found. And if it's rooted in how useful we are, well, I'm 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 afraid I'm I'm becoming less and less useful the older I get. Um, and and then you start, yeah, I mean we can go on about that. I want to conclude our our time tonight uh, with this story, and we'll come back to this. And and if you have some questions or even have some pushback, feel free to to uh, to send me a note. But I want to conclude with this story. I think this story is so cool. Well, let me tell you. Not long ago, Italian archaeologists completed an exhaustive survey of all the inscriptions and graffiti in the Roman catacombs, in, in, the, in, the, in the tombs. And one portion of the study dealt with the names 
that were bestowed and taken by Christians who lived in Rome. So what were the names that Christians took? What, what, were, what were their names? How many of the Christians took biblical names? How many of the names were, were they named after early martyrs? How many parent, Christian parents st stuck with the old traditional Roman names? So they're looking at, at the names that Christians had. You know, were they named after martyrs? Were they named after biblical characters? Were they, did they keep their pagan Roman names? W what were their names? But they discovered something that was really interesting. And they found a subsection of Christian names. And their names um, were humiliating names or nicknames. We learn that some Christians chose to bear names like this name, Proetus, which means cast off or thrown away like trash. That was their name. Others went through life with the Roman name Stercorius or the Greek name Coprion. These names are pretty hard to translate in polite company because they're vulgar terms for human waste, excrement. Why would Christians choose to bear such names? Well, it seems likely that those Romans were as infants rescued from the dung heap, rescued by Christians from the place where the Romans abandoned these defective or female newborns. They'd been exposed there like trash to die quickly from the elements or to be attacked by the claws of scavenging beasts. But here's the names. Proiectus, Stercorius, Coprion. All these people were lucky to be alive. But as children, can you imagine how they would have been treated by, you know, classmates? They would have to suffer the taunts of their, of their playmates who are pleased to remind them of their lowly origins. Who's your daddy? Your daddy is dung heap. Your name is trash. Now, those who are rescued by Christians could, at baptism, choose a new name if they wished. And sometimes Christians did that. They chose you know, biblical names like Matthew, Mark, Mary, Martha. But a lot of the names, it seems, from this study, a lot of the people chose to hold on to those insulting names. In the fourth century, the St. Hilary names of, 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 of one of um, his fellow uh, bishops as Stercorius, which means dung heap. He's a bishop, Bishop Dung Heap. Or it's probably worse than that. <laughs> and people kept these names to remind them and to show the world in which they lived. They were persons with dignity and value. And the, and, and the God story in the Bible, the equality story, the inherent value of every human being's story, they all go together. Human rights cannot stand for very long without the God story. And I think we're living in the shadow of a revolution of the person that occurred 2,000 years ago. And that is why even atheists, when they hear Lord Sumption say such things as he, as he said about the relative value of human beings, they, they, they react. But times are changing. I think we're living in the shadow of this idea. But as an old professor of mine once says, a shadow casts no shadow. And if we think that every human being is special, regardless of mental capacity, regardless of how depressed they may be feeling, regardless of the color of their skin, socioeconomic background, age and health, whether we realize it or not, whenever we value human beings as human beings, we're embracing the biblical story. The glass of water has value because it was made by the author of the universe himself. And so this is the air that we breathe. This is a result of a revolution of the person that Christianity brought about 2,000 years ago and has changed the world. And I think if we recapture this, it can change the world again. Amen? Well, let's pray.
Jesus, we are completely dependent upon you. We live, we breathe, we have our being, we exist, and we die in your providence and in your sovereignty. Every human being, everyone that we lock eyes with is made in the image of God and has dignity and value. And Lord, may, may that be not just a concept that we keep in our heads, but it may also spill over in terms of how we treat one another. Sometimes we're picked to write off people who disagree with us or put them into a category. May this be a reminder that every human being is fearfully and wonderfully made. And Lord, may we remember that uh, any call for human rights has to be rooted in the fact that we are imprinted in your image, by your image. And so help us to live this out, Lord. Help us to value life. And not look at people by their utility, not by what we can get from them or what they don't give us, but help us to see every person the way you see them, fearfully and wonderfully made, made in the image of God, and having deep, deep value because you deeply love them. That's our desire, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.